Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Sophia Chandrasekhar. In this episode, our two speakers, Kyle McCafferty and Dr. Rodney E. Rohde of Texas State University, discuss the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, as well as the medical laboratory profession. Today's episode is produced by Kyle McCafferty in the Leadership Academy class of 2021. Today's episode is also available for PACE credit. To obtain CE credit, please go to ASCLS.org slash off the bench and follow the instructions under how to obtain podcast CE credit. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Off the Bench. I am Kyle McCafferty. I am a medical laboratory scientist in the blood bank. I have been with ASCLS for five years. I am an ascending professional member, and I am part of this year's Leadership Academy class. I would like to welcome Dr. Rodney E. Rohde. Uh, you may have heard of him. He has over 75 research articles published, two books, and is a highly sought after keynote speaker with over 100 international, national, and state conference presentations. Even more about him is he's a professor, PhD, and chair for the Clinical Laboratory Scientist Program in the College of Health Professions at Texas State University. He is an associate director for the Translational Health Research Center. He's a global fellow of the Association of Clinical Scientists and honorary professor in international studies. I have mainly heard of him because he is an ASCP board certified specialist in virology, microbiology, and molecular biology. He spent over 30 years as a public health microbiologist for the zoonosis control division prior at the CDC as a visiting scientist. He's also served as an associate dean for the Research College of Health Professions for nine years. He wears many hats. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I hope I didn't screw any of your introduction up. Today, we are going to be talking about something that I read at the end of November, you were published about, and I just thought it was so cool after I heard about President Trump getting this antibody cocktail, which was actually monoclonal antibodies. So thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Rodney Rohde. Thank you, Kyle. And, and let me first congratulate you for being part of the ASCLS Leadership Academy class. That's a, thank you. a great honor. And as you know, this profession needs lots of leaders and lots of workers as well. So I really appreciate you, you know, jumping out there and doing that. We need more and more ascending and developing professionals to do so. So congratulations. And thank you for that long winded introduction. <laughs> I think it just means I'm doing too much at all times, but I, I really do like being involved. So I'm excited to be here and talk with you today. Yes, thank you very much. I hope you um, uh, meditated today or you found you find peace on your daily routine because you are a very busy man. Yeah, it's it's all good. I you know, I often tell my students and others that that kind of bring that up is that, you know, everybody's busy in their own way and it just kind of depends on your comfort level. So I've just kind of learned to adapt to all of those hats and I, and I do say no 
to some things, actually more and more as I've kind of advanced in my career, but I have a hard time saying no to things I love to do. So it's, it's just part of the ball game for me. Well, we are certainly glad that you did not say no to this. Um, Absolutely not. Ready to go. All right, cool. So monoclonal antibodies, like why, what it, what are they and why should we even care? Sure. So let's just kind of give some context for them. I know the audience uh, of ASCLS professionals and many others in the laboratory probably know basically what monoclonal antibodies are, but from a therapeutic point, and they've actually been around quite a while. So they're really most well known for uh, cancer targets. In fact, I was reading uh, an article myself a few months ago as I was preparing for that article you mentioned in November in the conversation. I wasn't aware of this, but monoclonal antibodies are, I think, I think it was like six or seven of the top therapies offered for cancer over the past decade or something. So they're, they're pretty uh, good tools uh, because of their ability to target different diseases and stuff. So just in general, what they are is if you think about how the human body makes antibodies uh, and, and how during this pandemic and really even other diseases, when you heard of the term convalescent plasma, where people were getting plasma as a way to try to treat a disease that probably wasn't treatable by other mechanisms, or maybe there wasn't a vaccine. Ebola, for instance, they tried this therapy. And it, it can work when you use convalescent plasma, but a lot of times it's not as um, targeted or direct. So what's great about synthetic or man-made monoclonal antibodies is that they typically create these in uh, something like a hamster or some other animal like that, and then they purify them. And in that process, through a, through a series of processes, they are inducing that immune response in a, in, a, in a mouse or in a hamster, something like that, to specifically produce a monoclonal antibody that will target something, some type of disease that will cause an infection. Wow. For, for this, yeah, and for this particular uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, what they did, and, and I'm sure you and everybody else knows this, that that, that viral spike protein is, is a pretty important target. And then our human cells, especially the respiratory cells that are infective, have this uh, receptor called the ACE2 receptor. It's acetylcholine esterase receptor. So if you can think of that viral spike protein as kind of a key and that ACE2 receptor is kind of a lock, it kind of goes together, that kind of antigen antibody. So what a monoclonal antibody does when you infuse it into a patient is that it targets that spike protein on the virus, thereby inhibiting that cell-mediated entry so that virus can never get inside of those cells, which stops amplification of the virus. And so it basically helps the body catch up immunologically. It helps slow down the viremia that's being caused by an infection. And so it, it's just another tool in the toolbox that kind of helps us get through that infection. Now, some of the headaches of this particular monoclonal antibody, and there's really two right now that are primarily being talked about that you've heard of. You mentioned President Trump. So back in um, November, that was uh, the Regeneron cocktail. So there's actually two monoclonals in that cocktail. 
soon after that, Eli Lilly came out with one as well. Uh, that one's referred to as um, Bamla na Minivab, which is hard to pronounce. But those, <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> having those, a hard time uh, reading that even, let alone speaking it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And it's weird. It's like all of those are, they. it's like they sit down and try to find, you know, the hardest word they come up with, with respect to how you pronounce them. So is Regeneron, have they gotten the go ahead from the FDA to be yeah. used on on the public so they've got the the emergency use authorization that's correct both eli Lilly and regeneron have the eua the emergency use authorization to go forward with those um therapies and just a quick comment about some of the limitations and then we can talk about the the uh, the benefit but one of the headaches is that what they have found uh, in general is that this cocktail needs to be administered within about 10 days of symptoms showing. Uh, and in fact, it, there is some evidence in the, in the data of when they were putting these together and using clinical trials that it actually is not effective or it might even be problematic if you give it during severe COVID illness. So later on, maybe two or three weeks down the line. So that does kind of limit it in the sense that if a patient comes into a hospital or they think they're coming down with COVID, you, you kind of need to know that. So you might need to get tested and know that you're infected and then, you know, discuss with your primary care physician and or the hospital, if you're going into an ER or something like that, that you would like to receive that monoclonal antibody. Because from what I've been hearing and reading about, even some physicians and some hospitals are still not aware uh, of that time feature and so if you wait around and you don't think about it you may get too far down the road to actually receive it so that's one limitation another limitation is that it's not like a shot it's not an injection you actually have to sit down or lay down and it's an infusion uh, and so they hook you up with an IV and it takes uh, the last I read I think generally about an hour or so and they they need to observe you for a while so I would imagine, you know, in a general hospital setting, you know, by the time you get in, get set up, start the infusion and being monitored, it could take three, four hours. Well, you and I both know the hospitals are overwhelmed right now. So that's that's a problem. And so they are looking at having um, some of these things sometimes maybe better off instead of going into the hospital that you actually do it in a clinic, like maybe you see with um, dialysis or something like that, where somebody could set you up and, and have that infusion and, and send you back home, uh, okay. for example, so you don't take up a hospital bed. So that's kind of some of the limitations um, on it. And I what, guess the... And also, you mentioned the process of making these monoclonal antibodies where you have to actually use a mouse or a hamster that is mimicking the immune system of a human and you inject them with or you inoculate them with COVID-19 they create the antibody or and and we have to obtain that and purify it um that just seems like a very expensive process so to me that also seems like one of the main limitations of this is if it's so expensive how readily will it be available to the public yeah being the president only being the being the first person to even get it uh that seems also like a very very limiting factor with this treatment although promising um, even after bringing what you also brought up 
convalescent plasma, a form of passive antibody therapy, which we used in Ebola and swine flu and, and other um, illnesses that we've, we've heard about, all the sexy headline illnesses that we've heard over the past decade, so, which, which is donated, so it's right. not expensive. So uh, even though that monoclonal antibodies are more targeted, um, it does seem very, very expensive to, to obtain. Right. Good point. Good point. And so that is definitely probably another limitation, although it, it kind of, you know, it's welcome to American healthcare, right? I mean, <laughs> when I was looking at some of that information early on, what I found was because that was a part of the conversations article was especially cancer monoclonals. I mean, these things can, can get up into five figures, sometimes six figures, especially with ongoing use, like through therapy, like you might see with cancer. But I have seen for these uh, two companies with respect to Operation Warp Speed and some of the things that have been implemented, that they're supposedly free, but I've also heard those stories like you hear with other situations where it seems like some people are getting it free, others are not, uh, or they have to go back through a, some red tape to get it taken care of. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that is an issue, but it certainly is, I'm sure, expensive to produce. One of the other since you said that, it kind of piqued my memory a little bit here. But, you know, when you produce a vaccine, which is a little different topic, my understanding is that because of the mass production and the advances that have been made in, in production for those types of things, they can make more of it. But with a vaccine, you need a very small inoculum, right? So monoclonal is more like getting a, um, and again, I'm not sure on this, but it's it's a bigger amount. So it might be a small a bag that you hang to infuse. So when you think about those animal populations or cell culture populations or however they're doing this, depending on the company, you can't just crank out liters of this stuff overnight. So it, it takes some time to get that volume built up. So I'm sure that's a bottleneck uh, just in the production of monoclonal antibodies. Right. Yeah. But I mean, we've talked about like, I mean, there are lots of limitations to any new drug that they're producing with haste, right? Um, especially in the middle of a pandemic, they are producing these things, trying to crank them out as fast as possible. Um, it's not new technology, but they, they have to do it quickly. But the benefits and the studies that you've read, how, what have you seen that makes them ma makes monoclonal antibodies uh, or, or gives them more of an advantage to, let's say, con convalescent plasma or um, remdesivir or uh, any of the other treatments we've heard for COVID-19? Yeah, great question. So to my understanding in the literature, when you look at the research literature and you look at the FDA um, data around monoclonals, again, I'm going to kind of compare it a little bit to cancer monoclonals, and I'm not an expert in onco oncology or anything like that, but some of those, um, you know, that they've studied for years and they've seen in, in patient populations in the thousands, if not tens of thousands over years, you know, they've been able to perfect them, uh, maybe refine the target and, th and things like that. So I think you see probably better efficacy in some of those when you kind of do that apples to oranges type of, of comparison. For the, for the COVID monoclonal antibodies, and there are more in, in line from what I understand that people are producing, it's not like overwhelming awesomeness, awesomeness uh, as far <laughs> as what it's going to do. But in some of the trials that I read and some of the uh, published research, for example, 
in the groups that received the monoclonal antibody, they got down to like less than 3% of those people had to be admitted to the hospital uh, for severe COVID. Those that did not, that, that the placebo was over, you know, 10, 15, 20%. So about a fold or two greater, uh, which may not seem like a lot, but again, as you were just saying, in the middle of a pandemic, when every bed matters, that's a big deal. If you can cut back 10, 15% of the, of the individuals coming into your hospital, you may save beds for people that need it. And, you know, that's really what, what is so critical about that infusion being in that first part of the infection. One of the things that, you know, if I go back to that just a little bit, severe COVID illness, which comes later, again, it's kind of all over the place when you, when you follow these infections, because some people have no issues and some had moderate and some are dying. But those that get severe illness, what basically is happening is it's initiating that massive inflammatory response, and it's primarily affecting the respiratory and the lungs and things like that. And as you know, it's flooding and causing pneumonia. And so at that point, if you wait too long, monoclonal is probably not going to do any good. At that point, you're going to need, you know, that dethmethasone, the, the steroid treatment, some of the, and maybe the antiviral throughout that to also help. So again, what I keep talking to people about when I talk about this, and it is pretty phenomenal when you think about how far we've come in about 11 or 12 months, when this all started, we really had zero therapy other than kind of the traditional wait and see and, and supportive therapy and fluids and all that stuff. But now we've got some tools in the toolbox. We've got steroid treatment. We got an antiviral or two. We've got a few monoclonals. Of course, we got all the things we've heard and, and read about where they put you on your stomach and keep you upright and, and some of these other things to keep your lungs clear as well as oxygen and, and respiratory therapy uh, assistance. So I think it's kind of interesting and it's very nuanced. So for the general public, when people start talking about, um, you know, the mortality might have been uh, plateauing over a certain amount of time, I think what you're seeing is treatments gotten better and we've gotten more tools in the toolbox. But because the pandemic is raging unchecked and kind of out of control with community transmission, there's greater numbers of people being infected across the US and the world. And that means greater probability of severe COVID illness, which means greater death. So again, statistics can lie or tell the truth. And it's always important for the, the public to understand that you might want to, you know, make sure you're understanding that data as you're looking at it. Because as you know, that science communication and health literacy is such a big deal. And we're all fighting that all the time with really almost all scientific data out there these days. Right. And, and you brought up a good point where you're saying greater numbers, seeing a lot of greater numbers in, in the United States. And I think that's probably because we're testing for it. Now we've ramped up our, our efficiency, our a number of tests that we actually do. And you said it, um, I, I, you know, I follow you on Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, every social media, you are what I call a social media guru, but you said it best where if you test for it, we will find it. And now we actually have the capacity to test for, uh, for the coronavirus. And so we are finding more cases based in, and it probably has been here longer than what we found it. So, yeah, right. Um, I mean, as a, as a virologist and a public health person, and I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that 
that statement up. I didn't create that statement. I, I kind of amended it over the years, but I've heard it many times from my mentors that I was training under back in the 90s and early 2000s. Anytime you look for an agent, you typically will find it. And so whether it's a true pathogen or, or just an environmental new interesting organism, right? I mean, there's all sorts of microbial life that we don't even know exist until we start looking for things. So yeah, that's part of it. And then when you think about, um, you know, this new variant that's popped up in the last few weeks or so, and, and again, I, I would urge everybody not to panic uh, and to keep some perspective with this because in all likelihood, I mean, viruses mutate, right? They are going to, viruses are going to virus and they're going to mutate. And this happens quite often with whether it's coronaviruses or or flu viruses or Coxsackie viruses or whatever you want to talk about. At the end of the day, what you want to make sure is happening is that it's not a mutation event that's causing antigenic shift versus, versus drift. Uh, and right now, all the evidence uh, that I've been reading and following is that this new variant we're seeing, it actually just popped up today in the news in Texas and Harris County and Houston. So I've got my family and friends are you know, calling me and worrying about it. And, and I, and I just, I'm telling him the same thing I'm saying here is that just keep, you know, keep your perspective. Let's see what happens. But everything we've seen is that the, the targets, the, the sequence changes that they've identified have not, have not affected the vaccine's effectiveness. That doesn't mean it can't. Uh, And so again, what's of anything that's good that's come out of this pandemic for me, is the unbelievable time frame we put that vaccine together and, and, and really did kind of work globally to do that. That gives a public health person like me and a medical laboratory person like me um, a lot of, of hope and really excitement that, that not only can we maybe handle this pandemic once we get the distribution of the vaccine figured out and handled a little better, but maybe in the future, maybe now we have the capacity globally to handle a new agent and it might take a year, but that's better than seven or eight, like we used to deal with with vaccines. So that part of it's, you know, really exciting to kind of see that. But but you're right. I think, you know, if you look for it, it will occur. The death rate, the mortality, if you look at yesterday, January 6, 2021, we pushed 4,000 people, a new record. So people are dying. I mean, it is a real pandemic. It's frustrating when people, you know, don't seem to either believe it or they don't think it's as bad. I mean, we're at, we're pushing 400,000 deaths in the United States. Even if we're not perfectly accurate, we're certainly pushing 350 plus dead due to COVID alone. And I mean, we're approaching numbers that are scary and are starting to parallel you know, some of the worst days and in, in timeframes in our, in our history of our world. I mean, if you probably saw some of this a few weeks or month ago where they were talking about when we hit 3000 deaths and things like that. I mean, COVID-19 is now taking up most of the top 10 days of death in the US. I mean, it's ahead of Pearl Harbor. It's ahead of 9-11. Uh, it's ahead of some of the Civil War battles and things like that. And again, all the historians can throw in all these, you know, maybe, maybe not stuff, but we certainly are setting historical records, probably the most significant public health emergency event in you and I in our lifetime.
right and hopefully that would never happen again in the future Let's as long as we are alive certainly uh you brought up a good point about vaccine distribution um trying to get one the vaccine sent to every state and health system and and readily available to the public and two having the public confidence for them to actually take it so um i know we're talking about monoclonal antibodies but I do want to shift a little bit. How can we as laboratorians or or health professionals uh, help instill public confidence that that the vaccine is is all right? We live in a day and age of misinformation. I mean, we live in a pandemic of the coronavirus, but we also live in a pandemic of misinformation. Um, People consuming conspiracy theories or or just or listening to the clickbait that you see online, we we have to have a combination of the vaccine and monoclonal antibodies in order to get this under control and to empty some of those ICU beds that we know are at max capacity right now. Right on. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think again for context, and I keep I'm going to keep preaching this as kind of a longtime public health person. Let's also not forget that the best way to avoid overrunning hospitals and our fellow colleagues in the medical lab, as well as nursing, physicians, respiratory therapists, everybody else that's physically and mentally, emotionally exhausted due to the, the work and the burnout of dealing with this is to not get infected. And so prevention is the best medicine uh, as, as a priority. Now, viruses are diabolical. I mean, in general, it's gonna happen to, to a certain percentage of the population, but we don't wanna make it easier So I try to talk to people even before I get into the vaccine terminology, and we can talk about that misinformation here in a second, but being good stewards of public health precaution, whether it's mask, which we have shown and and shown again and again that they are effective, they're not 100% effective, but even if it's 40, 50, 60% effective in preventing infection, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing it everywhere, you know, unless I'm doing a podcast locked in my office and and are doing something by myself and are with my immediate family that I'm living with that that we're all pretty safe with. So that's that's part of it, as well as hand hygiene and avoiding crowds and all the same stuff. It's as important, if not more important right now, because of the high rates of community transmission. It's worse now than it was last March. And it was worse in the summer. And now it's worse than the summer. It is cranking in the community. So you should potentially think about every stranger or even kind of outside your primary family or friend bubble as being a potential vector. And that sounds kind of, again, scary, but it's true. That's just the nature of the beast. So that's part one. And then, um, you know, our therapies that you mentioned, super critical that we all are aware of monoclonals and antivirals and the things that we can do once we're infected, as well as being safe if we're positive. If you're not getting real sick, staying home, staying out of crowds, staying away from people. And then that vaccine, which we're all excited about, it's here. It looks to be awesome with respect to efficacy, at least the the two that are being used with Pfizer and Moderna, and there are some others popping up around the country, I'm sorry, around the world. And so those could be helpful as we try to globally vaccinate people. But you're right. I mean, the distribution piece is something you've probably seen me talking about in the last few weeks. It's the next frustration, I think, of people that have 
been following public health for decades, things we've screamed about for decades, knowing it's going to be part of the issue. And here we are dealing with distribution issues. You know, our goal was to be at 20 million by the end of December, and we're barely at 2 million. Um, that is not, you know, that is not a good um, plan because it could take years to get the population up to what we need. So in my professional opinion, and I think many people in my realm would agree, we really need a national strategy. Um, there's too much going on at the state and local level uh, this is one of those things where I know the U.S. loves state rights and things like that, but I think there are times when you need a federal national guideline and a strategy, and I think this is one of those times. It does not mean we can't use state and local public health departments, as well as things like the corporate world of CVS and Walgreens or local. Like in Texas, we have HEB grocery stores that are all over Texas. And they're phenomenal in service. Uh, they've already proven it with food supply during the pandemic. They could be very efficient at helping. And so we need to take advantage of that. But we need a, a national uh, plan where perhaps the military and the National Guard just take over 24-7 of getting that stuff out here, setting up depots, places you can ship at the hospitals. And remember, while I mentioned hospitals with the vaccine, I mean, in reality, hospitals probably aren't the best place to be doing vaccine distribution because you guys are overwhelmed with treatment and care. I mean, other than maybe having enough to vaccinate the healthcare workers, in my mind, we don't use hospital as vaccine centers uh, unless you set up a clinic separate, you know, a different wing of the hospital that's totally away from patient care. And that's the vaccine center because we don't have time to be to be taking up pharmacy and nursing and things like that for vaccines that should be that should be other folks so so that's a part of it and then you know i could talk all day about infodemic right i mean the the misinformation the disinformation of scientific and educational data is here it's here in the united states um one of the people I follow, he's a international and global expert, is Dr. Peter Hotez out of Houston, Texas. Uh, if you don't follow him, I would highly recommend you check him out. He's a he's a longtime uh, expert. So he's also a vaccinologist. He's the dean of the Baylor uh, Houston Medical School and Tropical Disease uh, Studies. So this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's been fighting this infodemic as well for years. And you know, you, you kind of get a target on your back when you put yourself out there and start fighting this, but it's incumbent, I think, upon laboratorians. You mentioned what can we do? We are, we are smart people. We are put through programs of rigor, of education in medical lab science, as well as clinical training hours that surpass even physicians when it comes to medical laboratory medicine. And so we have a part of educating our friends and neighbors and colleagues and even strangers if possible about what is accurate scientific data and therapies and treatment. And we're not gonna convince everybody. Um, I have definitely come to the conclusion that it's difficult to handle conspiracy theorists. Um, it just is. And sometimes I feel like I may need to move on from that and, and work with the people that are kind of, you know, teetering on, on, yeah, and teetering. And maybe that's the people we need to focus on because even healthcare professionals are teetering on some of this COVID right. vaccine. And so my, my response to people that are kind of scared of it is I understand 
I do. I mean, I understand we all want it to be safe. It's only, you know, a couple months rolling out here, but I always tell them, don't give up on it. If you're that worried, wait, it, don't say no, say maybe, and, and let's watch it for two or three, four months. Maybe this summer you decide after six months that, wow, you know, this is working. Um, positive results are going down and hospitalizations are dropping. I'm going to roll up my sleeve now because I'm not seeing a lot of problems. So every vaccine, every therapy is going to have some type of adverse effect. Uh, It's just our risk. Right. But, you know, you just, you have to take it in perspective with, with respect to what's going on. So I would hope those people that are teetering I try to share my experience, you know, because I I just received my vaccine um, a few days ago. Congratulations. Uh, And thank you very much. I feel lucky to have it this early. Um, You know, being in the laboratory, we were priority. We were the third priority of the first group um, because we have indirect patient care. We still handle patient specimens. We're readily exposed on a daily basis to infectious, potentially infectious agents, right? So my only complaint was that I had a sore arm like I have in any other flu shot I've ever received in the past. Or I I still think the tetanus shot is the most painful one that I've ever had. Wait, Um, wait till you're... And you get the shingles vaccine. That one's pretty, <laughs> that one's pretty rough, but yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what I've been hearing from all of them. And I haven't gotten it yet. I'm, I'm ready. My sleeves, I mean, I'm rolling it up now. I'm ready to get it. It just hasn't in Texas. It hasn't been, um, we're not in that earlier priority group, but it, it should be, you know, a month or two down the road. I'm hoping we get moved up a little bit because our students that are going to be doing clinicals in our program at Texas state, as well as the faculty that are supervising and going out into hospitals, not only are handling specimens, but, you know, you are kind of mixing into those patient areas. So I'm hoping we get prioritized a little bit through the university when they become available. But yeah, you're right. I mean, everything I've heard has been sore arms, maybe a little fatigue. uh, And really, that's it. I've heard some people have no issues with it. So it's interesting to me that people report like, Uh, even something like that. And it's their right. It's not a big deal, but I just think a sore arm is nothing compared to severe COVID illness. So, right. Right. You know, perspective. And you brought up, we need a national strategy of reassuring the public that a sore arm is far better than having severe COVID illness and being on social media or, or even just watching the TV. I don't see any commercials or ads that are reassuring the public why don't we have a public confidence campaign going um yeah and that's what's what been really frustrating for me when i talk to these people who convince themselves that they will never get the vaccine because of how quickly it was created so so to me that's super frustrating trying to convince somebody that it is it's it's fine and i think that that if we had a national strategy more people would be more likely to take it yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I'll say this a lot of times and some people kind of look at me, you know, like really, but I mean, it's, I think we're a product of our own success. So my grandmother who was born in 1899, my, my dad's mom, she lived to, to be a hundred years old and I miss her terribly. And we used to have these great conversations. She passed away in 2006, but we used to have these great conversations 
when I was here. I mean, I was I was moving through the academic realms and my grandmother was in her 90s and stuff. And she would talk to me about things. And I mean, she lost a child, a, 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 a infant to polio. And I would talk a little bit. This is right when the kind of some of that misinformation stuff is starting to come out about vaccines and things like that. And, and she thought the world was crazy. I mean, to her, to someone who grew up when polio and measles and other things actually killed children and adults on a regular basis to have a vaccine. I mean, Salk was a hero. They had ticker tape parades for this guy in New York. And now, you know, in reality, and you're right, maybe that's something we should be doing is celebrating the, the discovery. Uh, and if not discovery, just the ability to produce a vaccine in a year. You know, maybe we should be celebrating that success, whether it's through the media or when we're able and able to get back together, an actual parade, you know, for some of these people, some of these scientists that have done this. These, this is an amazing thing to prevent death from a virus that has been wiping people out. So I just hope that people understand how fortunate and privileged uh, we are to live in a time where we can fight an invisible enemy like a virus and 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 the difference in a hundred years of someone like my my grandparents and their children that that were terrified uh and that's just in my lifetime so we're very very fortunate and blessed to have that ability to do so yes yes and 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 to have people like you that are constantly putting out information uh about it and and doing the research and then to have people like myself and my colleagues that do the testing. And uh, I work in the blood bank dealing with the convalescent plasma. I know we've had many orders for them. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Takes every healthcare professional. Everybody has a role to play. And, you know, we've really harped on, and you know, I do this. I really try to push that advocacy and visibility of the medical laboratory, but it's, it's everybody, right? I mean, we, we have long felt like we've been neglected and kind of hidden. And I think this pandemic in a way has blown us up with respect to visibility. And every one of us has an opportunity to get out there and share what we do. Testing alone has made people open their eyes and see what we do. But it's also done the same thing for respiratory therapists that are right down the hall in my building, nursing. You know, they're already in the in the mind's eye, but respiratory therapy is kind of hidden. You know, pharmacy's kind of back there. And so, I mean, we all really need to be pulling pulling the same way uh, with respect to how important and critical we are so that the United States and other countries will fund more programs for medical lab science. Uh, and not know, the other way around, which is actually happening, is many of them are closing. And never yep. in my life would I imagine that we would have a New York Times article highlighting the fact that we are the hidden profession um, right. in medicine. So. It, it is. Yeah, that's that is one great thing that has come out of all of this is that we do have some light shed on our basement laboratories that, you know, don't have windows, don't we don't have see patients. We rarely see nurses or doctors. Right. Um, um, but 70 percent of the patient's chart comes from the lab. And in right. uh, uh, and, and we hear this, this is, it's almost like beating a dead horse, but we always need this constant reminder. Every time I go to an ASCLS conference or another scientific conference, we are having an identity crisis. We as scientists call ourselves technicians or te- techs, and we need to start t- call, telling our, 
you know, calling ourselves scientists. We are more important than what people give us credit for. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I mean, you know where I stand on this and many of my colleagues as well as you. And, you know, I, I think it just, it's not really anyone's fault. I think it goes back historically and many people in, in my colleagues and ASCLS and ASCP have talked about this as well as the up and coming professionals is just, it's problematic that historically we were never able to kind of get online with a single name right? So like, we know what a nurse is, we know what a physician is, we know what a pharmacist is. And we just had this issue with, you know, it started as medical lab technologist. And that's where that tech uh, kind of a kind of uh, language comes from. And, right. and, and there's nothing, nobody's trying to be derogatory about it. But when you hear tech, you know, it, it, it evokes so many fields. I mean, you hear tech all over the place, a pharmacy tech, you know, you hear all these different kind of, and a lot of times it's, it can be in any field. It might not even be in medicine. So I agree. And I understand the argument of, you know, that some people were certified as a med, a med tech. And so they're kind of, they're kind of on that because of historically, that's where they came from. But I would hope that we would all start getting to use, I've, I've really adapted over the last really six or seven years to using medical laboratory professional as a umbrella term. It really keeps you out of trouble because there are so many specialties and there are so many programs. And then if you're getting specific, try to realize that we have medical lab technicians that are associate degrees. We have medical lab scientists like yourself. We have specialists like me. We have doctorates of clinical laboratory science now, which is exciting. And so and lots of master's degrees that are specialist in blood banking and things like that. So it is confusing. Um, so sometimes I've tried to use medical laboratory professional uh, to try to umbrella it, you know, put an umbrella on us, um, especially if I'm speaking to the general public, so that at least medical laboratory, medical laboratory, medical laboratory keeps right. <laughs> coming out and people, you know, and, and you're seeing that. And the other thing, Kyle, that I'd like to mention here while we're talking for your audience and for my colleagues and and friends in this field, if you're doing an interview like I'm doing right now, or you have an opportunity to speak as an expert from your institution or write, if you're writing an article or you're doing something like that, try to work on putting that right nomenclature out there and telling the reporter or telling the, the anchor that you're talking to, because what happens is they also use it. So that conversation article uh, that you've seen, uh, not the one on monoclonals, but the one about the shortages and why we're so important that came Mm -hmm. out in December, I had to go back in right before they published that and change the language to medical laboratory professional. They were putting laboratory professionals. And so that, that could be anyone. And so again, just trying to catch that because it's really easy when you're being interviewed or you're writing to kind of get caught up in, oh, they'll get it right. It's not their fault. They don't know. They're going to grab. And so you see lab tech in the, in the headline, you know, and so yeah. that's a problem because that's the first thing that pops up and then it gets cited and used and other people pick it up and it gets amplified across all media. So just a little and to hint. The, and to the average person, that really isn't as much of a big deal, but it is. It is because it perpetuates that term. Right. And, and that is our identity, you know, and, um, 
So no, you have a to, role. I know we got a little off topic talking we about we some did. of our frustrations about that. But, <laughs> we did. Um, <laughs> I did have a couple questions just right before we sign off about the coronavirus. We are now entering 2021. We're only seven days in at the time of this interview. Um, what are the biggest challenges that you see moving forward? Well, if I had a crystal ball, I think <laughs> I think the biggest challenge well, I mean, there's several. I think I'm going to use that national strategy language again because I think it permeates everything. It permeates testing. It permeates vaccine distribution. It permeates how people see the ability of the United States to save lives. And so to me, that's one of the biggest hurdles even going forward is can we get the United States public health national strategy fixed and i know it's kind of there but it's piecemeal and it's and this pandemic has really shown us some of the some of the weaknesses and bottlenecks uh everything from supply chain issues to testing we've been talking about these for 10 months now and it seems like a lifetime ago where we we're talking about supply chain issues and things like that but all of those have to be looked at and fixed so that when this happens again and it will probably at some point we want to do a better job with that. So that's part of it. And then I think what I'm really concerned about right now uh, going forward is you and your friends and colleagues that I've that I've taught or mentored that are in the trenches of, of healthcare. I have talked to so many of my alumni that are physically and emotionally burning out. Uh, and you know all the reasons for that more than I do, but it's it's because on top of what was already a, a shortage issue in our profession of personnel and doing more with less and going lean and and things like this, I have a I have a former student who's adjuncting for us right now, and she is an outstanding professional uh, here locally, and and she actually mentioned to me this past week that she's considering quitting because she is just working herself to death. And there's so many factors we can talk about why, uh, but we've got to get that fixed. Um, we've got to figure out a way to, to empower our legislators through information. You know, ASCLS does a wonderful job with Ledge Day and our own uh, lobbyist. We've got to amplify that. We have got to use this time uh, to highlight why this is such a national emergency. And it, and it links right into mortality. I mean, if we can't get people tested and we can't get people treated um, and you're losing medical laboratory professionals by the, you know, the dozens or hundreds, it's going to impact healthcare and, and lives. And so I think those are really the two biggest issues I would be concerned about going into 21 and really beyond really pushing that, keeping it in the limelight. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I thank you for being here. Uh, again, I'm a huge follower of, of all your social media. Everybody should check out him, Dr. Rodney E. Rohde on Twitter and LinkedIn. He readily posts all of his publications and his colleagues' publications on both of those sites. So uh, be sure to check him out and give him a follow. Again, thank you, Dr. Rohde. And thank you, Kyle, for the opportunity and, and keep on doing what you're doing, not only in the in the laboratory. You know, I want to take a moment to thank everyone um, that is working their butts off during this time. It, it's 
it's phenomenal what you're doing. And so I hope you keep that up. And what you're doing with this podcast and, and you know, encouraging your your generation and those around you to get involved and to, and to be a, in a leadership class and to to seek opportunities to better this profession and, and healthcare. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. This is Kyle signing off. See you. <laughs>